So, First Peter, let's go through our, our, our who, you know, uh, why, what, all that kind of fun stuff that we've been doing just to get, and, and again, most of you are going to be familiar with all these things, but our who, who wrote this book, and we know it's Peter. Peter identifies himself right there at the very beginning of chapter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful because Peter's a familiar guy for us in God's word, isn't he? We know Peter probably more than most. Um, and it's interesting that Peter, um, his name is mentioned 210 times in the New Testament, whereas Paul is mentioned 162 times in the New Testament, um, or sorry, the name of Paul, yeah, 162 times. And then the combined names of all the other apostles is mentioned 142 times in God's word. So Peter is talked a lot about, and that usually had to happen because Peter's a guy that was oftentimes struggling with the foot and mouth disease, being impulsive, getting into situations he shouldn't have been, running into things that he, he should have been kind of, you know, a, a little bit maybe seeking the Lord in. But I love that about God's word because the Bible is filled with imperfect people. You see, the Bible doesn't set itself up and say, listen, all these people here are just so perfect and wonderful. That's why God worked to them. No, the Bible is filled with imperfect people like you and like me so that we can relate to God's word, so we can understand that God desires to work through us. God desires to use us in our imperfections, but he also desires to grow us to perfection. And that's what we're seeing with Peter. Because Peter becomes a very changed life now. What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit happened. The Holy Spirit got a hold of his life. And so then at, after the day of Pentecost, suddenly Peter's standing up. You know, not too long before, he's denying that he even knows Jesus to a young servant girl. And then after the day of Pentecost, he's standing up and preaching to the, to the crowds. And he's laying out the gospel with just a newfound boldness. Peter recognized that in Christ, there's forgiveness and there's new opportunities, new chances to be used, so much so that Peter can say now, I am Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am sent out, commissioned by Jesus. Yes, I didn't deserve it. Oh, I'm not perfect. But Jesus has called me, he's chosen me, and he's using me, and I keep coming now and humbly submitting myself to him for his service. That's Peter, and I like that. Now, Peter, like I said, his book here is kind of known, or Peter is known as the Apostle of Hope. Paul is known as the Apostle of Faith, whereas John, and we'll get into John next Wednesday, John is known as the Apostle of Love. So we have hope, faith, and love being represented in three of these key writers of the New Testament. I think that's so awesome and so cool. Now, we see that Peter's the guy that wrote it, but to whom is he writing this letter now? Um, Peter's not writing to a specific church as a lot of letters in the New Testament were addressed to, but Peter's writing to a group of believers who were all going through the same thing, and that was persecution because of their faith. They were believers who were facing trials, pending persecution. They were feeling completely like strangers in the world. That's why Peter addressed this letter this way in, in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, in that whole region of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey now, 
Peter's writing to the believers who some of them perhaps have had to move and literally have been dispersed, uh, been in exile because of their faith, because of persecution and troubling times and trials. So Peter's writing to these believers to encourage them now. That leads us to our reason for why this book is written. And again, it's to bring hope and help to believers who are struggling in this trial. Many believers were no doubt questioning now why these things were happening despite you know, the popular health and wealth gospel of today that likes to promote that as followers of Christ, we should be experiencing everything to our prosperity, to our health, to our goodness, because that's who God is. And so we shouldn't have to go through trial or poverty or sickness. That's what some promote today. But that's not in the Bible. And so Peter's writing not to say to these people, listen, you're going through trials. What's the matter with you? Do you need more faith or something? Pick it up already. Is there sin in your life? What's going on? No, Peter doesn't address that. He says, listen, you can have hope in the midst of the struggle. You can be encouraged in the midst because God is with you and God is still at work and God's going to lead you through these things. So Peter sets out in this epistle to get people focused, not so much on what's going on before them, but more so what's been done for them already in and through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the fact is that we're not living for this world, right? We have a hope that is beyond this world, an inheritance that cannot be corrupted or defiled away. So with the right perspective, we can begin to rise above the difficulties that we're facing in this world, in this life, and and live in this manner that brings glory to God, which ultimately brings joy to the believer. Living for the glory of God brings great joy and satisfaction to the believer because that's what we have been created for. J. Allen Blair said, First Peter is a favorite book because of its practical approach to the needs of every believer. This little epistle provides a splendid source of peace and comfort for all God's people who are perplexed and troubled. So, lastly, when was it written? Well, tradition tells us that Peter was martyred under the reign of Caesar Nero. We're not sure exactly, but most likely this uh, happened sometime around 67 to 68 AD. Peter wrote this letter as persecution began to intensify, which would most likely have put this around 64 AD is the time of this writing. And it was in 64 AD, remember kind of the background to this letter here because it's in 64 AD that that Nero had some arsonists set Rome on fire and his desire was to rebuild the city with kind of his stamp upon it his handprint on all the things that are going on to make kind of a name for himself but when people began to get a little bit leery and suspicious about Nero well he needed to pass the blame and so he began to call out the Christians and blame them these Christians that were kind of weird these Christians that they would say were cannibalists because they, they ate the flesh of their master, drank his blood. That was about communion. They had it twisted around. These Christians that talked about escaping the fires of hell, see, they're the ones that set the fire to Rome. And so Nero began to lead a great persecution against Christians and against the church to kind of save face even for himself. So it was a very difficult period for these believers and it's in this setting that Peter is writing with this word of encouragement and hope here.
So our outline in this book here is in 1 Peter, we're going to see the believer's salvation. We're going to see the believer's submission, the believer's suffering and the believer's service. In 2 Peter, we're going to see faithful progress in the truth. We're going to see false prophets against the truth in chapter 2 and then future predictions of the truth in chapter 3. All right. So look again at chapter 1, verse 2 of First Peter and says this, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. That's great, I love that. Peter, you see, he jumps out of the gates with this heavy theological truth for us. These believers who are going through trying times, perhaps were wondering, is God for me any longer? Is God with me? Is God present? Is God real? Because if he is, how come I'm going through these things? It's an easy thing to question when trials begin to get amped up in our lives. We can begin to wonder, God, where are you? But understand what Peter says here. He says, listen, you're the elect of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, God has chosen you. And God's at work in you right now through the sanctification of the Spirit. You see, God's doing a work in and through all this. Now, the word sanctification is simply the word uh, hagios, which means to be set apart. It's kind of where we get the word holy from. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, setting us apart from the world and setting us apart to God, doing that work of purification in our lives. God is at work through you. And he allows these things in because he knows it's going to do a greater work for you ultimately. Oh, we may not like it at the time. But remember what Hebrews says is that God chastens those whom he loves. He's not out to hurt people. He's out to build people up and strengthen people. And sometimes we need that kind of extra outside help in doing so. And so God's at work. And also we see what Peter says here is that God's heavily invested in you. Do you see what it says there? It's also through the, or for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Peter's also kind of identifying our salvation and the work of the Trinity in our salvation. It's God who elects. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing that work of uh, sanctification. And it's Jesus who died to pay the penalty for your sin by which we are saved, by which we come into a right relationship with God. So in other words, God is heavily invested into you. Through his son Jesus, he gave up his very son Jesus to die on a cross. If God was ready just to abandon you and give you up, would he have sent his son in the first place to die for you? So remember that when you're going through difficulty or hardship and you're wondering, God, do you care? Do you love me? Understand that. God has chosen you, and he's not going to abandon you. God's at work through your trial, in and through the Holy Spirit, sanctifying you. And God is heavily invested into you. He gave up his son, Jesus, for you. Would he do that and then decide to just leave you now on your own? Not so. So, so Peter's looking to encourage his audience in these things. And then he says in verse 3, he just continues on to bring that assurance and hope for his believers or for the believers here. He says in verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This word begotten, I like that word, it connects us to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3 verse 3. This reveals to us the work that happens in a person at salvation, that they're given new life. And this new life comes with a new hope. It's a living hope. How good is that? This means that despite what we may have to deal with in this life, better things are in store and it will all be worth it. This living hope is likened to an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. That's what chapter 1 verse 4 says. It's, it's incorruptible, it's undefiled. It's reserved in heaven for you and we see that we are being reserved for heaven. How so in verse 5? It says, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being kept. So in other words, you're going through difficulty in this life, but yet God is keeping you. Keeping you for what he has in store in heaven. That living hope that's not going to be taken away or fade away or be corrupted in any way. God is preserving you for what he has in store. So you know that he's at work. You know that he's not abandoned you or left you. So Peter says, rejoice in these things. Like in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So because of this wonderful work of salvation that's been done for us, we have reason to rejoice even though we might go through difficulty, struggles, or suffering. See, Peter's not dismissing the trials. He knows it's been hard, but even in these trials, he's saying, God's at work. He's keeping you by his power. He's preserving you. He has got that inheritance reserved in heaven for you, and he's reserving you for that heaven, for, for heaven. So rejoice, take heart, be encouraged of what God has done, is doing, and is continuing to work through in our lives. Now, here's the thing. We have to recognize, like I was alluding to earlier, that the trials serve a purpose in our lives. God desires nothing but our best. And you see, if we go through this life without any problems, as much as I'm sure the majority of you are all going, amen, I'll take it, yeah. Life with no problems, bring it on. I can handle that. See, what would happen is that we can easily begin to get very comfortable, complacent, and think, eh, I don't really need God. I mean, everything's kind of rolling along pretty good. But you see, trials do something in us and for us. And that's why God allows them to happen. So what do they do? How do trials help us? How do, what purpose do trials serve? Well, first of all, they refine us. They reveal our faith. And they reflect God's strength. See, Peter gives us that picture of fire or gold that's tested in fire. 
precious metals and ore are placed in fire so that all the impurities can rise to the surface so that the silversmith can scrape away all the, the, the junk that doesn't need to be in there. The fire causes it to rise to the surface to see and identify it and take it away. Trials have that effect on us. It allows us to see the stuff that isn't of God. Our attitudes, our, our reactions, our behavior in certain situations. And like gold that becomes more valuable through the fire, our faith even becomes more valuable. Secondly, trials give us opportunity to see if our faith is genuine. That term acid test originated during times when gold was widely circulated. Nitric acid was applied to an object of gold to see if it was genuine or not. If it was fake, the acid would decompose it. If it was genuine, the gold was unaffected. That's what trials do. It begins to reveal, is my faith true? Is my faith genuine? See, a tried faith is a true faith. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that can endure through the trials is not a faith that you can rely on. And and thirdly, trials are an opportunity for God to get greater glory. Because as we go through trials, as we lean on the Lord, as we look to God, which oftentimes in those times of trial, we recognize God's really the only source that I have to be of any help for me. Because I can't do this on my own. I can't make it. I need to look to God. And as as we are strengthened in the Lord, as God sustains us through, we begin to reveal that it's only through God. We begin to show that it's His strength that helps me. And that, in turn, begins to reflect God more and give God greater glory. Now, I like that Peter was sure to say in verse 6 there, though now for a little while. See, Peter recognizes In scope of eternity, whatever trial you might be enduring today or this year or in this life in general, it's just for a little while. It's not going to last. Now that might might be true just in the fact that your trial might be very short and God's going to bring you through, but most likely he's going to bring you through in preparation for the next trial that you're going to face. Until we reach that day when we're with Jesus when we no longer deal with any trials. And in that day, we'll look back and go, oh man, I, I sure whined and belly ached through that trial, but now I see, man, that was just nothing. That was just but a little while. Why was I freaking out so much? It's just for a little while. And it's doing a work in us. God's at work through it. So, we recognize that God's at work. Our salvation is ultimately secure for eternity. And that presently we may have to deal with hardships. But here's what Peter says we need to do now. Because of the fact that our salvation is secure, God's elected us, sanctifying us through the Spirit. We, we follow in obedience through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's done it. He's reserved um, an inheritance for us in heaven, reserving us for heaven. We have a living hope. Our salvation is secure. Here's what Peter says to do now. Protect your mind. More actually, he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
gird up the loins of your mind. I like that, I like that image, all right? It's, it's that image of when people were ready to go into battle or go to work. Everybody would be wearing long robes and not Dave and the men. So the men had to kind of pick up the robe, get it out of the way so they wouldn't be tripping up on it. That's what Peter says. Don't let your mind be full of junk that's kind of weighing you down, distracting you, encumbering you. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't let anything be in the way. In the armor of God that's spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6, it's the helmet of salvation. In other words, you're to rest your hope fully in the fact that you are saved and that Jesus is once more again coming for you, it tells us in verse 13. So we're to protect our minds and thoughts and be sure we're resting in the hope and security that our salvation is in Jesus and that he's provided it and we're secure in him. How do you handle trials or pressure or problems? Does your mind start racing through with negative or anxious thoughts? Is your mind taking you down a path that only causes more fear and fretting, dismay and discouragement? Or have you girded up the loins of your mind and said, I'm going to rest my hope fully in the grace, in the salvation that's going to be brought to me when Jesus returns? It's already secure now, but it's just simply going to be realized in that day when we stand with them. Are you girding up the loins? Are you protecting? Are you putting on the helmet of salvation by which when you doubt what you're going through, you can say, ah, you know what? I'm a child of God. It doesn't matter what I go through because he's with me. He's going to see me through. Gird up the loins of your mind. You see, Peter wants these believers to know that they have something that is lasting. It's enduring. It's worth living for and it's worth dying for. Look at verse 23. Of chapter 1 verse 23 having been born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass the grass withers and its flower falls away but the word of the Lord endures forever see Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 6 to 8 here to give a comparison between nature and the immutability of God's word. Everything that is of the flesh and that's of human origin is just going to fade away. That means all the cares and the problems of this life aren't going to endure. But you know what is going to endure? The word of God. It's of that incorruptible seed. It's the word of God that has caused us to be saved and his plan of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen, And it's been planted into us this incorruptible seed it's been planted in that that produces life in us life salvation hope so as peter says now in chapter 2 verse 1 he says put aside everything that's not in line with the word of god that will hinder you from living for god that will cause your mind to be weighed down with junk that's not of god put aside all those things and it's important that we're not just laying aside and emptying, but that we're also putting on what is good, right? So, look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 to 3. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So put aside all those things like, like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, but then put on the word of God. Desire the pure milk of the word of God. Put on that which is true, right, noble, good. Our goal and objective is to keep growing and drawing closer to God, you see. And really, Peter's saying, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, then desire the pure milk of the word. He's not saying if, because he knows, man, oh, if you've at all sought the Lord, you know he's good. Since you've tasted that the Lord is good, then desire the pure milk of the word, by which you will grow thereby and keep growing and keep being strengthened in the Lord. See, we're to be desiring the word, but it's to be leading us to keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. His grace is good. His love is good. And the more that we experience the goodness of God through his word, the more that we're going to want to be in the word to experience the goodness of God. That's the beauty of just spending time in his word, allowing his word to speak to us. So everything that is going on around us and happening to us is an opportunity for us to be built up. Strengthen the Lord. Peter talks about that in, in, in um, chapter 2 here, verses 4 to, to 10. He talks about us being that, that chosen people, a royal priesthood, by which we're like living stones being built up a spiritual house. Everything's going on is meant to cause us to grow, be built up, to be strengthened, to be fitted together into a spiritual house where we get to serve and honor God. So we've seen the believer's salvation chapter 1 on to chapter 2, verse 10. But now, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we look at the believer's submission. Because since these Christians were being targeted by a corrupt authority in Rome, it was important that they lived blamelessly and not give opportunity for anybody there to have an accusation against them or to say, see, this is why we're doing this, because you guys are just so awful and bad and we've got to eliminate you. No. Peter says, live without reproach here, basically. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. We'll read a few verses here as we look at the believer's submission. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, Fear God and honor the king. So rather than finding ways to fight against the government, what does Peter say? He says, submit to the government. Did I say that being a Christian isn't always easy? Right? Because that's something I'm sure we struggle with. Oh, the government is so corrupt. They don't know what they're talking about. They're a bunch of idiots, a bunch of morons, right? How many people have said that, right? And yet, Peter would say, man, you got to submit to them. They're appointed there by God. And as you submit to them, what, is, what does Peter say? Well, 
Um, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, in verse 13. Do it for the Lord. Don't do it because you think that, that that person in that position is so worthy of your submission or because they're so smart and wise. Do it for the Lord's sake, Peter says. And in so doing, you're going to be living your life in a way where nobody's going to be able to have a, an accusation against you. Something bad to say against you. Some justification for treating you the way they treat you. Oh, that may not stop them from doing so, but at least they'll be doing it now in a way where they're going, this isn't right or justified. So, submit. Now, we also recognize that our submission to earthly government does not supersede our submission to God. You see, some people might think, okay, well, now we just need to obey at all costs. No, we still follow God's word first and foremost. And anytime that we're being called to do something by a governing body that goes against God's word, then we have reason to say, you know what? Just like what what the apostles did in Acts chapter, I think it's in chapter 5, chapter 6, but said we must obey God rather than men. And that should be our stance too. Oh, we don't look for loopholes to go, oh, I'm going to get away from paying my taxes because I don't think that's right. I think I'm actually somehow breaking God's word. No, we don't find loopholes in these things when it's obvious that the government is causing us as believers to go against God's word. Then we can say, you know what? I must obey God rather than men. So it doesn't supersede our obedience to God, but we need to, as believers, follow submission to government officials for the Lord's sake. And in so doing, you're obeying God, as long as it doesn't go against God's word. And this submission gets played out in a number of scenarios as chapter 2 and chapter 3 lays out for us. It plays itself out in the way that that servants or employees need to obey their employers. And again, you might feel like you've got a boss that doesn't know what he's talking about. But that doesn't mean that you can just go and do what you want to do. Bless them. They may be, they may be a moron, but bless them in the way that you submit to them. Be a reflection of the grace and the love of Jesus in that situation. And Peter interjects there in chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, that Jesus himself submitted himself, even allowed himself to be mistreated and to suffer. Verses 21 to 23 talks about that. Jesus himself is our great example and model of a person that was willing to submit, even when it cost him something. And... Chapter 3, the submission is to get carried out in the home between husbands and wives specifically. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, wives, submit. Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, that's important, right? Wives, likewise? Like, like what? Just like what Jesus did for us. Likewise, in the same way, when Jesus even went through difficult stuff, he submitted. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And it's important that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. See, we're dealing with those that perhaps aren't 
followers of Jesus aren't believers. Where the wife might be thinking, oh, is this my get out of jail free card? Because they're not a believer and now I just come to, to this faith in Christ, this Christianity being very new at that time. Is this my chance to get out? No, Peter says, just live a life that's, that's honoring, submissive, that might win them over to Jesus in the long run. So that's what Peter's instruction is. But you do so just as Jesus did for us. And then husbands, you're to, you're to dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife. Bless them. You may not get them, but seek to bless them and honor them and, and cherish them for, for who they are. They're a, they are a blessing to us. And so, look at what it says in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, that's great because I don't have an employer. I'm not married. So none of this applies to me. But no, Peter says, all of you be of one mind and have compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted and be courteous. As believers, you see, we're to be walking in submission one to another. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, chapter 21, I believe it is. Submit one to another. We're to have the same mind, and the same mind is ultimately the submissive mind. Look at what it says in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So this is the attitude we're to have one to another. Consider others better than yourself. Be submissive. Be honoring to others. That's not just wives to husbands. That's not just employees to employers. That's all of us one to another. So we've seen the believer's salvation. We've seen the believer's submission. Now we look at, again, the joy of the believer's suffering. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 13. Peter again reminds us here that Jesus himself suffered. And if Jesus suffered, why would we think that we'd be exempt at all from that? In fact, Jesus suffered for us. In fact, we're going to jump over to chapter 4 and see how Jesus went through these things for us. So if our suffering is for him, then ultimately, we go, well, this is wonderful because you suffered for me and I get to come along and, and, and live my life in a way that honors you even through my suffering. In fact, our suffering brings with it a purifying effect. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's pretty interesting. Now, it's not so much that your suffering brings with it an automatic forgiveness of sin, as though it's like, okay, well, yeah, you suffered enough, so I'll just make you saved now, child of God. Your sins are forgiven. You've paid the price enough now. No, our suffering doesn't bring forgiveness of sin or removes our sin. Only Jesus can do that. We know that. But our suffering shows that we are more willing to live for Jesus than we are to live for ourselves. It shows that sin no longer has the kind of hold it once did in our lives. 
That's what Peter's getting at here. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So Peter says, listen, my friends, don't be surprised when trials come, when, when difficulty comes knocking on your door, when you go through a time of, of pressure or problems or even pain. Don't think that's strange or weird. Don't look at, at your life and go, this shouldn't be happening to me, I'm a Christian. No. The point is, Peter's saying, Christ has suffered for you. If Christ suffers, why would we think we would not? Why would we think that we can be exempt from these things? And here's the thing. Rejoice, Peter says. Rejoice that you get to be a partaker in the very things that Jesus partook of. Because what that does is that leads, as Jesus' suffering led to glory, well, guess what it's going to do? It's also going to lead to our glory. And, and Paul talks about this in Philippians 3.10 that he might know Christ and even the fellowship of his sufferings. See, Paul understood there's a great union, there's a deep fellowship that comes when we partake of the kinds of painful, hard trials with one another. There's something that's forged in our, in our relationship, in our bond together. That's the fellowship of suffering you know that to be true in your life where you've experienced great heartache or difficulty and you come across something that's been through the same thing there's something that's just an immediate kind of attachment you have that's what we get to experience in and with christ as we go through these things so peter says and rejoice to the extent that you partake of christ's sufferings lastly in chapter five we see the believer's service. We just covered this on Sunday. We'll run through a few things. Peter addresses some functions within the church. Primarily, he encourages elders to keep leading God's church well. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. You see, the elders must remember that it's God's flock. It's not their own. Shepherd the flock of God. Not shepherd your flock. See, as elders, overseers, shepherds, all used interchangeably in the New Testament, we're to be good stewards of the church and not use the church for our own personal gain. And what a shame that is when that happens. Where we've seen time and time again people that have used and abused God's people for their own benefit. Listen, there's going to come a day when those people will stand before God and they're going to need to give an account. And if they've used and abused God's people, it's not going to be a good outcome for them. But they're going to have to answer to God. Man, that keeps my knees knocking, I'll tell you that much, my friends. That keeps my knees knocking, realizing that I am going to answer to God for how um, I have been a, a steward of what He's given me. How I've shepherded the, His flock. I'm going to answer to him one day. And I don't want to be standing there 
saying, oh, well, you know what, I was just kind of in it for myself. And I was just sort of, you know, looking to see what I could get out of it. Oh my goodness, that will not be a fun day. I want to I be presenting to God, just again, that, that shepherd's heart where there's a care. There's a love for the flock, for his people. Where I can hear in that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's, that's what I'm to be, is a servant uh, among servants here. We're all in this together. We're all serving. We're all looking to follow our chief shepherd, as Peter alludes to there in, in chapter 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will then receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Well, it may not always be easy, again, in this life, but you're going to receive a crown for how you've been faithful in what God has called you to do. It may not be in shepherding, pastoring, or being an elder. Maybe God's called you to something else, a different role, but be faithful in that. God doesn't reward you based on what you've done or the success you've had. He rewards you based on faithfulness to his calling. What has God called you to do? Be faithful in that. So that you can look forward to the day you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Well, verse 10 of chapter 5 ends with this. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus... After you suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. I love that. That's Peter's heart here. Oh, just let the God of all grace come and be sufficient for you in your time of hurt, in your time of difficulty, in your, in your time of trial, temptation, whatever it is. May God, the God of all grace, may you find that he is sufficient for you, and he is because he's the God of all grace. Not a little bit of grace, all grace. And through what you're going through, guess what he's doing? He's going he's gonna to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Well, Second Peter here now. Again, our outline there is the faithful progress in the truth, the false prophets against the truth, and the future predictions of the truth. Chapter 1 here is the faithful progress in the truth. Now, as much as First Peter was being written to warn of dangers on the outside... Trials, troubles, all these things. Second Peter's been written to warn of dangers happening on the inside, kind of within the church. False teachers, you see, were a constant threat in the early church, looking to bring in a false message, a twisted gospel, something that would lead people away from the simple truth. So Peter says there in chapter 1, of Second Peter verse 1 here, or sorry, verse 3, he says this, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, what Peter says is, listen, you don't need anything new being added to you or the message. We don't need the gospel being changed. You have everything you need right there. God has given to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. We don't need to add anything or change anything. Life is found in the knowledge of Jesus through faith in Jesus. Peter can attest that we have this word confirmed. It's true and it brings about life. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. And so we have... The prophetic word confirmed, 
which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We have the more sure word of God right here. Don't allow somebody to come in and tell you, oh, wait a second, no, what, what this really means is this, or you don't need this word, let me give you a new word. Peter's saying, no, we got the more sure word. Don't listen to them. Don't look to those that are adding to the truth of the gospel. See, chapter 2 reveals that, that there were false prophets who were coming against the truth. There was that continuous struggle in the early church with those that tried to promote this mixture of Judaism with Christianity. It all sounded good, but it didn't leave Christ as the singular Savior. See, the minute you try to say, listen, it's Jesus and, oh, you can have Jesus, but you also need to do this. That's what this mixture of Judaism and Christianity did. The minute that you do that, you've got a different gospel, my friends. If it's Jesus and, you've got a different gospel that cannot save. It's only through Jesus by which you can be saved. It's only by calling out and putting your trust in the name of Jesus who died on a cross and rose again to provide the forgiveness of sins, the penalty uh, of your sins, who took the judgment of God. It's only Jesus that has done that. We can't add to it. We don't contribute anything to that. We just simply accept it by faith. We receive it. It's a free gift. That's the grace of Jesus. It's not Jesus and. It's only Jesus. And these false teachers were corrupting that. Some were going even further than that and saying, oh, they were denying the Lord altogether. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Now, here's the great thing. Though false teachers are going to come and go and we see them today and we haven't seen the last of them here's the thing god will deal with them god is going to take care of them look at what it says in 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 verse four for if god did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment skip over to verse nine then the lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. See, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment. God is going to take care of them. Sometimes we think, oh my goodness, we've got to stop this. We've got to do something. Now, I'm not saying we don't expose false teachers and we don't correct. I'm not saying that. But ultimately what we know is that the Lord is going to take care of these things. So after Peter dealt with the present danger against the church, he turns his attention to the future. Chapter 3, we look at that future prediction, predictions of the truth. Read with me 2 Peter 3, verse 1. It says this, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your minds 
by way of reminder. It's always a good thing to do, isn't it? We need reminders, right, all the time. That's why, you know, going through this study tonight, even though much of it we've just covered recently in church, I know, you probably forgot it all. We need reminders in these things. Even what I said on Sunday, I barely know what I said on Sunday. I need reminders of these things. So Peter's looking to remind us of these things here. That you may be, verse 2, mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, with all this talk of our living hope, our inheritance that's reserved in heaven, it's not corrupted or it's not going to fade away. This, this talk of the coming and the return of Jesus, some would have been prone now to begin to question and ask, well, when is this going to happen? And you see, some of them try to twist things around and say, listen, everything has just been going on as per normal since the beginning of time. Nothing's changed. Nothing's been different. Everything's been going on without that intervention of God. But Peter reminds them that this is not so. In fact, the world was once flooded because of God's judgment. And there's coming a day when God's judgment will once again be executed. This time, though, by fire. Peter addresses that here in in chapter 3. That they're forgetting, they're neglecting the fact that God flooded the world. God intervened against the wickedness of man. Now some might question, well, why has this happened yet? And Peter gives us the answer. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, or His promise. As some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, here's why these things haven't happened yet. Maybe you've wondered, how come the Lord hasn't come back yet? I'm ready for the Lord to come back. I wish it happened long ago. Lord, when are you coming back? And we can get impatient. We can be wondering and questioning, why? But Peter tells us right here, because the Lord isn't as impatient as we are. In fact, to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years, it's like a day. It's nothing to the Lord. But here's the real key, is that God is long-suffering and He is desiring that none would perish. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't come back, say, 10 years ago? Maybe it's 20 years ago? Because when that last... 10 years, maybe you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you're grateful that He didn't come when you weren't ready. But in His patience, He's given you opportunity to get ready. And guess what? There's millions more. Millions more that God is being patient over so that they can get ready, so that they can respond, so that none would perish. Oh, there's coming a day when He will return again. There's coming a day when people will be caught off guard. Not everybody is going to be willing and ready to receive him. But God in his patience is allowing more people to come in because his heart is for all to be saved. 
and they come to know him. He's extremely benevolent. His arm is not short in showing mercy and grace. That's so awesome to know about God. See, the real issue is not when would this happen, but more so because these things are going to happen, what kind of lives should you be living now? And Peter addresses that in chapter 3, verse 11. He says this. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, speaking about the world, everything's going to be destroyed by fire, he says. All right, that's going to come in the day of the Lord. He says, since all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're to be living our lives now in holiness, conducting ourselves with reverence and godliness. That's what Peter says. Don't, don't worry about when. Just think about, now, because these things are going to happen, how should you be conducting yourselves today? Now, when is the heavens and the earth going to be dissolved in a new earth, a new heaven, new earth come in? What's well, going to happen after the millennial reign of Christ? It's after the millennial reign of Christ. Let me give you a quick timeline. And maybe these are things we can talk about on Sunday in our Q&A. If you've got questions about these kinds of things, send your questions in. All right, riversidecalvary.com forward slash questions. Write your questions in. Let us know. But you see, what we believe here at church, or I guess I can say what I believe, because maybe not everybody believes that, and that's fine. But... I believe the next thing that we're going to see come is the rapture. And the rapture is where Jesus delivers up his church, meets his church in the air, where we go to heaven. And it's during that time that the tribulation begins to unfold, that seven-year tribulation that Daniel 9 talks about, where there's that seven-year period still that's reserved for Israel. Israel owes God seven years. And, And they're going to be dealt with during the tribulation period. The church is removed right away because it's in the tribulation that God is pouring out his wrath and judgment against the Christ-rejecting world. The Bible says that God's not appointed um, us to wrath but to attain salvation. He will not judge the righteous with the wicked. So we're removed, I believe. And it's at the end of the tribulation that Christ comes back. That's the second coming of Christ where it's going to be visible. All are going to be seen. Not everybody's going to see the rapture. It's going to be in the twinkling of an eye as 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And so it's going to be quick in the moment. Not everybody's going to see it, but they will see a second coming. Instead of second coming, that he comes and he ushers in his millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ where the earth begins to be restored. All right? And, and there's just that perfect righteousness being enforced in that time. But then at the end of the millennial reign... Satan leads a rebellion. It reveals that the issue is not our environment, our surroundings. The issue is our heart. Because people, even in a perfect environment, are going to rebel against Christ. And Jesus is going to bring an end to that rebellion. That's when Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire, the eternal resting place, which is hell. All right, the lake of fire. Satan's going to be cast in there. And then there's going to be the great white throne judgment where that's for 
unbelievers. All those that have died apart from knowing Christ are going to be resurrected, stand before God, and they're going to be judged. And they're going to be put in the lake of fire. It says that even death and Hades and the sea gave up the dead. They're going to be put in the lake of fire. It's then, after that is done, that God brings in a new heaven and a new earth where we will live forever with Him. Revelation chapter 22 talks about that. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be grand. I wasn't planning to get into all that, but I know some of you are going, when does this happen? How does this look? Uh, And so hopefully that fills in a little bit for you. And we can maybe talk a bit more about that on Sunday. But Peter here, getting back to this, sums up our study now. Sums up our study in these two books. He sums it up well in these two verses here in chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved... Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. That's been our theme through this steadfast in the faith. And so Peter says, do not fall away from your own steadfastness. Don't be led away by false teachers. Don't be led away by your own circumstances by which you think, It's not worth it. Or maybe God's abandoned me. God's at work. God's using you. God's growing you through these times. Keep growing, Lord. Keep looking to the Lord. Keep being steadfast in your faith. Because we have a living hope. We have eternity that we're looking forward to. This is temporary. And God's going to lead us through and bring us home where we will know and realize it has all been worth it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight, for a time just to look into your word. And and what a joy it is, Lord, just to be fed from your word, to know your truth, and to know what you have planned, how you are at work today, even in suffering and trial. You're using them, God, to grow us, to work in us, to use us for your glory. And one day... Lord, that suffering is going to lead us on into being in your glory where we'll have eternity to rejoice in you, to know and recognize that, man, everything that we've gone through in this life was worth it for what you have in store for us. Keep bringing encouragement and hope, living hope, to all my brothers and sisters that are watching right now. Keep encouraging them and strengthening them to be steadfast in the faith, Lord. And so again, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us, what you're doing in us. And Lord, keep leading us on to glorify you now. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.